You're listening to episode 413 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. We're doing a podcast. It seems like it's been forever. And I'm David Vanderhoof. How does this work? I know. We've uh, we've been um, MIA, Not I guess. Not my fault. Yes, for... Uh, for quite a number of weeks, as uh, those of you who listen to our other show, the Airplane Geeks podcast, know, I've been on a extended road trip, uh, much of it offline. So uh, we've been on a bit of a hiatus lately, but uh, I'm 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 now halfway across the country and uh, visiting my brother and sister-in-law. So I have the the use of their Wi-Fi, and so hey, David, let's do a show. All right. Well, we since we've got almost two months worth of stuff to talk about, um, we got a fairly substantial bunch of stories. Let's start off with the Navy and large drone swarms, Iranian drones with parts from around the world, FAA guidelines for community-based drone organizations, eVirtals and the 2023 FAA reauthorization bill, Man, Max, it seems like we've just went through a reauthorization bill. It's time again. Large Chinese cargo drone, the Bell Autonomous Pod Transport eVertol, Russians with drones in Norway, plant specimens sampling with drones, and a wing drone has a fiery ending. And last but not least, a collaborative combat aircraft and a video of the week. So I guess we should get started. David, if we remember how to do this. I know finally. Let's get started. Well, our first story comes from technologyreview.com. The US Navy wants swarms of thousands of small drones. The article accesses budget documents and the Navy wants to use thousands of small drones that flock together and overwhelm anti-aircraft defenses. Yeah, this would allow one operator to control an entire swarm of drones as a single unit. Uh, so that has a, a great efficiency. But, you know, David, uh, conflict is changing, and we'll talk some more about the implications of that coming up, I think. But it's changing, and uh, how we approach it is is changing and uh, given that uh, the world is different now than it was from a you know military strategy standpoint, uh, utilizing lots and lots of drones as a swarm to overwhelm an adversary, it's it's starting to make quite a bit of sense. Definitely, technology has changed, and I would say over the last uh, nine months. And of course, we're referring to the invasion of Ukraine. Drones and drone warfare on both sides have dramatically changed. And what we thought were going to be standard procedures are now becoming unique. And it's becoming a global conflict as far as the drones are concerned with drones coming from multiple countries into the combat zone and Everybody has a slice of the technology, and like Max says, we'll talk about another article a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of drones are becoming quite the global weapon, and by global weapon, I mean a weapon made of global parts. Oh, that's true, and 
drone swarms for military applications is not completely new. The article in Technology Review points out that Israel has uh, used swarming drones in combat. Um, that was last year in 2021, and so they're probably the first nation to uh, use swarming drones in that way, but many others are working on swarms as well, including China, Russia, India, the UK, and Turkey. So we're going to see this uh, more and more frequently, I think. Yeah, and of course, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So, of course, as the swarm truck technology grows and um, becomes more prolific, I'm sure there will be anti-swarm technology that will also proliferate um, because this is definitely a, for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction or for every weapon system, there is an anti-weapon system. So as we go forward, um, drone swarms are going to be a big deal. And we're talking sizable drone swarms in, in this. We're not talking maybe 10 to 15, but like we've seen with all of the firework replacement drone activities, these are several hundred drones interacting at one time and being operated by individuals or eventually, most likely, AI, artificial intelligence. Right. So our next story comes from Yahoo.com. Austrian engines, South Korean and Malaysian microchips, U.S. parts found in Iranian Mohar 6 drones. Now, we were just talking about this. It's amazing what Iranian drones are made of, and it's not necessarily Iranian parts. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we know this now because of some drones that have been shot down, have been examined and taken apart and studied to see what was inside them. Uh, in addition to the uh, South Korean and Malaysian U.S. parts, uh, Japanese and Chinese parts have been found um, in them as well. I think, you know, overall, it, it it may not be really that big a surprise from the standpoint that you know, many of these drones are uh, assembled from components that are individually available. Um, some of them are subject to export controls, but others are not. In the case of this Iranian drone, a major component that was found uh, was uh, was the engine. Yeah, and it, the engine is pretty famous. It's it's a Rotax, um, and the Rotax Corporation is investigating and quote have not authorized and has not given any authorization to its distributors to supply military UAV manufacturers in Iran or Russia. It probably is a reversed-engineered Rotac engine that the Iranians are using, um, but definitely uh, they've gotten either the plans or the parts. And Rotac engines are, quote, are produced, designed, and certified for civil use only by the applicable Civil Registry Authority and a company. So... Um, these are this is a really big deal that you know underlying this is sort of industrial espionage if i could say it i would i would understand it industrial espionage well of course the rotax engine is uh, pretty uh 
widely used around the world. I mean, there are a lot of Rotax engines out there powering a whole variety of different aircraft, manned and unmanned. Uh, so it's not really inconceivable to me that this it could be an actual Rotax engine that, you know, that they've picked up somewhere. Uh, there are always parties out there uh, that have access to equipment that are willing to sell to anybody, um, you know, on the on the QT if necessary. So it, it really, it, to me anyway, it's really not a surprise. It's not shocking, let's put it that way. Um, but it will be interesting to see what uh, Rotax uncovers in terms of, you know, where these engines may have been, may have been sourced. Um, but, you know, you find all kinds of things. Microprocessors from South Korea and Malaysia, um, those are um, uh, covered by sanctions. So those may be bought in violation of the sanctions. Again, there's always, there's always somebody that's willing to do a deal for if there's enough money involved. Um, but these kinds of things have been found before in drones used by uh, both the Russian military or by, by uh, the Russian military rather in Ukraine. So uh, it's not a big, to me anyway, it's not a big surprise. Uh, you know, in some cases, export laws may have been broken. Um, in other cases, ah, there's just stuff out there in the marketplace. There are sanctions as far as the the globe goes um, for these parts. And like Max's reference, there are export restrictions on, on these kind of parts. But like I said, there are always a third party that's willing to sell to the highest bidder and, and espionage in other ways for, but it is interesting that these kind of vehicles really can't be built internally by one country. I mean, the parts are needed from globally and globally sourced, which shows you how dramatic the global, the global economies become that, you know, that one item, you can't make it by yourself, even though it I mean it may be that these microchips were um, used for something else and they were retrofitted by Iran, Iran or whatever. But the sanctions are are, are definitely working. They um, and they are global, so there uh, multiple countries have got sanctions out there. So. It's very interesting, um, but again, it, it is definitely an indication of the global nature of UASs. Yep. So let's talk a little less global and a little more local. Well, at least the Federal Aviation Administration. They updated the recreational dro drone flying guidance, and this was from suasnews.com. Recreational drone flyers are required to follow the safety guidelines of an FAA-organized, community-based organization, meaning your local RC flying club. But what's that mean, Max? Well, these organizations uh, recognized by the FAA develop safety guidelines in coordination with the FAA. They have to approve them. And if you're applying to be one of these uh, FAA-recognized, community-based organizations— uh, you can uh, use these guidelines and, in some cases, even tailor them to the particular type of unmanned aviation that you're interested in in covering. But you have to make an application to become one of these organizations. And so now what we see is that the FAA has issued some guidance on how to become recognized 
as a community-based organization for recreational drone flying. And this comes out of a FAA advisory circular. And it provides a list of recommended safety guidelines. The applicants can use them in their application. Organizations can apply for FAA recognition through, through the FAA Drone Zone website. So the advisory circuit provides guidance to persons operating unmanned aircraft under the exception for limited recreational operations, persons using UAS for educational or research purposes, persons requesting re uh, recognition as a community-based organization, a CBO, persons seeking to establish a fixed recreational flying site, and CBO conducting sanctioned events. Um, I guess this is more codifying what we've talked about over the last couple of years, Max. That It's sort of getting it more straightforward to what the FAA wants for the application process. And the article that we're looking at here is focused on the, the CBO aspect of it, the community-based organizations. But as David just outlined, um, the uh, the advisory circular covers these other areas as well. So if those are applicable to you, you might want to take a look at this. And of course, we'll have a link in the in the uh, in the show notes for this episode to the advisory circular. But in the section on community based organizations or CBOs, just to give you an idea of of the kinds of things that they have in mind here, they talk about general safety measures and practices and some recommended safety guidelines. And they include things like adequate protections and mitigations to prevent the uh, unmanned aircraft from causing harm to any person, uh, prohibition on modifying the aircraft and the carriage of hazardous materials or weapons, prohibition on Which means the state of Connecticut's out of luck on that. Well, at least one particular teenager. Uh, <laughs> prohibition on engaging in careless or reckless behavior, as well as airspace re uh, restrictions and prohibitions, and safety, pre-flight, in-flight, and post-flight. Um, but then it also covers, in its circular, a number of other uh, issues, other uh, considerations that applicants for the CBOs might want to, uh, to consider. Yeah, so first-person view safety, of course, um, maintenance, inspections, Flyer medical conditions, you know, if you're a pilot, you have to pass your medical, you know, and if you're flying a drone, there's no reason why you shouldn't be a, a healthy individual. Um, emergency procedures and incident reporting and more. So, I mean, again, this is a codification of stuff we've been talking about, and a lot of it is common sense, but you still have to put it in writing, I guess, for everybody to oblige to it. So our next point is this is the FAA section of the of the news of the news and that's drones and air taxis will be a big part of FAA bill. Hearings for the 2023 FAA reauthorization bill are underway and this is of course from politico.com. That's right the Senate Commerce Aviation Subcommittee is looking at this and what they're terming or what some of them anyway are terming as new entrants into the airspace. So what does that mean? They want to focus on things that are <laughs> things that are new that we haven't really addressed in any great detail in the past in terms of providing guidance to the FAA 
in this case, we're looking at eVTOL aircraft that uh, the, uh, the author of this piece is suggesting is going to get a lot of attention, um, which is good because then that gives the FAA their guidance on that topic. Um, we've said it uh, previously, but uh, as, as some people are unaware that the, the FAA doesn't just make up all this stuff themselves, uh, the FAA... Uh, it just feels that way sometimes. It does sometimes. But uh, the FAA is uh, responding to the the directives and the guidance and the requirements that are uh, outlined, they're set up in these reauthorization bills. So this is where, another way to say it is, this is where the FAA gets their marching orders. Uh, and um, so it, it, there's a lot of attention this time coming on to the new entrants, things like eVTOL aircraft. And over the last, even over the last year, there have been a lot more eVTOL aircraft that have actually made first flights and et cetera. So it's definitely going to be a hot topic. Um, and of course, UASs, which were in the last re- reauthorization bill, um, I'm sure that they're going to follow up on it. But with the money comes regulations, at least from Capitol Hill and the um, executive branch. So the reauthorization bill basically provides their funny funding, but with the funding comes the, we want you to do this clauses also. So it'll be interesting to see um, a lot of times this, these things seem to drag on. Uh, like I said at the beginning, um, it's hard to believe that we're back on a reauthorization bill because um, it just feels like we just did it, but it's been several years. So, Yeah, and another um, point that the article makes, and this is referring to the fact that the, these kinds of issues are oftentimes quite political, is that we have an election coming up, right? The mid uh, midterm uh, elections coming up. And depending on how that goes, that could impact the reauthorization priorities and also along with that, and maybe more importantly, who gets to lead the discussions. So if there's a shift in the political balance uh, after the elections or as a result of the elections, uh, that could really impact all of this um, as well. And then just one other point I I, I kind of noted is that uh, this uh, this term AAM seems to be used a lot in this context, advanced air mobility. Are you talking about UAM, urban air mobility? And uh, there's just a lot of different terminology, but the the terminology for eVTOL kinds of aircraft that seem to be associated with this reauthorization is advanced air mobility. So you'll be hearing that in the future a lot, I'm sure. So if you had that on your buzzword bingo card, um, just (laughs) make sure you mark that off. Yep. But yeah, I I guess AAM is a little bit easier to say than eVertol. So we will see. Um, So let's talk about China. This is from aviationweek.com. China flies large twin-tailed Scorpion D cargo UAS. The twin-tailed Scorpion D is claimed to be the world's first large-scale four-engine uncrewed aircraft system, UAS, and it flew for 18 minutes. And they said it was a trouble-free flight, which, I don't know, it seems to be the case in almost every first flight you read about, regardless of uh, manned, unmanned, uh, commercial, military, 
the first flights are all, always a great success, but that was the case here. Uh, they are saying uh, it's, it's a pretty good-sized uh, aircraft, 10.5-meters uh, long, about 34 feet long, 20-meter wingspan, a height of 3.1 meters, maximum takeoff weight, 4.35 tons, and it has a, um, a cargo bay that can carry a maximum payload of uh, one and a half tons. So this is a pretty large aircraft. Uh, I don't know what the though I don't know what the engines are, David. I don't know what the four engines are. Um, maybe you should try to try to figure that out. But uh, an aircraft like this has a lot of different potential uses. Yeah, and the company Tangden did not provide an operational range, but Scorpion D's closest cousin. The TBO-01, with a maximum takeoff weight of 2.8 tons, has a range of 3,700 miles. So you've got range and um, carrying ability. So there's a lot of applications, like Max says, that, that could be this used for. Um, and especially for delivery for... Um, well, actually, one thing I didn't see... And I have to go back and look at the picture, but Max, I don't think it was a vertical takeoff and landing. I think it was. I don't think so. I don't believe so. It was a fixed wing, so it, it'll be interesting. It would be interesting to see what kind of um, short field or long field relation it needs to take off. Mm. Yeah, that could be key. They do plan to exhibit this uh, in the near future. In fact, uh, November eighth. 2022 at the Zuhai Air Show. Uh, so uh, if you're able to make that air show, uh, you'll, you'll get to see this Scorpion D. Yeah, maybe they'll it'll fly and we'll get some more news to see what is going on. So let's talk about other commercial autonomous UAVs. And this is Bell bringing it to a air medical show. Um, the AINonline.com says Bell brought its autonomous Pod Transport, or APT, eVertol, to the 2022 Air Medical Transport Conference in Tampa, Florida. I think that would be a cool conference to attend, personally, Max. I, I think so. Now, this thing has been flying for several years. It's not in production. Uh, Bell is hoping that the production version uh, has uh, some characteristics uh, around the number 100, that it can deliver 100 pounds to uh, a distance 100 miles at 100 knots per hour. So that, that's their design goal for this. And it's medical supply delivery as its prime application. It can be manually offloaded or automatically drop loads at a fixed point or overfly and drop. Um, so it, it's got multiple ways of deploying its payload, which is... Um, Cool, and, but it's definitely a prototype, and I guess there hasn't been enough market yet. A hundred pounds, though, for medical supply, I, that seems like it's a lot for a medical supply. And you, the the medical supplies we've been dealing with, Max, have been smaller packages. You know, I don't know what a hundred pound medical supply would look like, and who would you would be delivering it to. Yeah, that's just uh, you know, one of, I think, many, many possible applications. They have flown at BV loss. It's been test flown, BV loss. And they've done that in some uh, really congested and also highly controlled airspace. 
uh, even around the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. So they're, they're, they're having that result uh, with it. it, it this, this craft is, I don't know, it's kind of hard to describe this uh, uh, visually. It, it almost looks kind of like a box kite, but with four fuselages, little, well, I wouldn't call them fuselages, four um, engine pods, I guess, maybe. It's an H with four engine pods, but it, it's a vertical... It's one of those vertical takeoff and landing vehicles that transitions to horizontal flight. It's one of those tail sitters, I guess, would be the best I way to that, describe yeah, it. That describes it well. And so it, it, it takes off vertically, and then once it gets airborne, it transitions to um, horizontal flight using its wings and the engine pods. It kind of looks like an X-Wing without the center fuselage, <laughs> if I'm going to reference Star Wars. Uh, so. All right. Interesting. So um, we look forward to uh, Bell continuing with this and uh, uh, hopefully getting it into production and, uh, you know, in the hands of some users that can get some real value out of an aircraft like this. Okay, Max, we haven't had one in a long time, but we got a You're Grounded story. You want to take it away? This comes from the Washington Post, titled Russian Man Arrested for Flying Drone Over Norwegian Airport. And uh, that's what happened. A 50-year-old man was arrested. This was over the Tromso Airport it's in northern Norway. Police say they seized a, what they called a large amount of photography equipment, as well as the drone and memory cards. And they found in all of that photos of another airport uh, Kirkenist, which is near the Russian border, and also photos of a Norwegian military helicopter. So it sounds like clearly this uh, individual, who, who is not, as I recall, not a uh, Norwegian citizen, but uh, is, is Russian, uh, was obviously, it would seem, there to collect some intelligence. But the background behind this is in February 2022, Norway's Civil Aviation Authority banned Russians from flying or operating aircraft, including drones, in Norway. The law prohibits Russian-registered and Russian-operated aircraft from landing in, taking off from, or flying over Norway. So the man clearly was in violation of the law, and it clear, definitely the indication is it was um, of espionage kind of level. And he wasn't the only one. Apparently... The previous week, another Russian man uh, had been arrested. Yeah, and they custom found, found two drones in his luggage at a border crossing. He said in court that he had been in Norway since August and had flown drones throughout the country. There are numerous drone sightings last week at sensitive locations, including a glass plant near the city of Stavanger in southern Norway. So a bit of a... UAS flap in Norway. Tensions are heightened, I guess, with everyone dealing with Russia, but um, it seems like Norway is getting a little um, more view than normal. Yeah, I think there's uh, some uh, interest uh, on the part of the Russians for uh, for what's happening or what's going on in Norway, as well as other countries around them. And yeah, this is an example of where uh, you know drones are being used apparently as the uh, tool for, for espionage. And commercial drones, needless to say. These are off-the-shelf drones that are being used. And, and I, feel, I feel since it's Scandinavia, I should say, that even though it was Norway, it 
it just seems like something's rotten in Denmark. <laughs> okay. How about in Hawaii? What's going on in Hawaii? Well, drone samples rare specimens from cliffs and other dangerous places. This is from scientificamerican.com. Drones are being used in Hawaii to capture specimens of rare and endangered plants that are in places that would be too dangerous for humans. So, like the side of a volcano? <laughs> yeah, that would count. Sheer cliffs. Um, an article in Scientific American mentions that historically botanists would rappel down sheer rock faces to collect samples of plants. But they're using drones. There's really a, a, a two-part or two-piece configuration to the equipment. What they're trying to do is, is gather samples of these of these plants. So you need something that can go uh, to a place that's kind of inaccessible and snip off samples of plants. So they're using, first of all, a commercially available drone but it carries this second robotic machine that they've called a Mamba. And it's a remote control arm, um, a little bit like a jointed arm, like the Canada arm that was on the space shuttle. You know, it's suspended from the hovering drone and it, you, they use that to pick the plant samples. Mamba, of course, is a snake. Um, so, it, it, you know, it sort of coils up and grabs these samples to bring them back to the ground. Yeah, and it, what a much better solution than having botanists rappel uh, or across a steep cliff or some dangerous location like that. This um, this makes a lot of sense. Well, it had to happen eventually, Max. But we got this from a couple of people in various stories, and it probably was the biggest story to hit down under in a while. A food delivery drone hit power lines, caught fire, and left thousands without electricity. This was from gizmodo.com. And Max, you want to take away the subtitle? Yeah, I love the subtitle. I mean, this summarizes the whole thing. The subtitle to the article is, An alphabet-owned wing drone, quote, incinerated itself after it became entangled in power lines in Brisbane, Australia. On the bright side, the food stayed hot. <laughs> I think they had fun writing that one. And I'm sure, Max, that we're going to see more and more of this as time goes on. You know, people have been flying into power lines for years, but an unmanned delivery wing operate delivery vehicle operated by wing landed on power lines in Brisbane and fried itself with 11,000 volts of electricity with more than 2000 homes and businesses briefly going dark. I mean, it's as effective as a squirrel. I, I'm pretty sure that's what caused the one New York blackout was the squirrel. So, Well, there's a spokesman uh, from the uh, utility provider Energex, Danny Donald, and he had a couple of interesting quotes. He said, we didn't actually have to get the drone off as such. It actually caught fire and incinerated itself. So apparently the, the drone, what was left of it, fell to the ground. Utility workers found it. And um, Donald continued, the meal was still hot inside the drone's delivery box when the crew got there. I guess the um, kind of the, the, the irony or the humor of, of the story kind of takes some of the sting out of it. But obviously we want to be watching for interactions between unmanned aircraft and things like power lines or structures or you know, other, uh, other things that they shouldn't be tangling with. It'd be, I think, quite instructive to 
to see what the the analysis or the investigation of the the reason for this entanglement turns out to be so that it's something that can be avoided in the future learned from learned from yes well you know max to to paraphrase the old saying right why wasn't the drone made out of the same stuff that the hot box was made out of <laughs> then it wouldn't have been a problem. You know, it's like, why don't they make, why don't they make airplanes out of the same stuff they make the black boxes out of? <laughs> um, helicopters are notorious for flying at the power lines. That's why most helicopters have wire cutters on them. Um, drones are going to be in operating in the same flight, flight envelope in the flight levels. So there might be need to have some sort of anti wire you know cutting or something along those lines for them so helicopters really come with wire cutters yeah really i didn't know that if you look at um one one of the easiest one to look at is look at a ch-46 yeah if you look at the nose the 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 modification was called a bullfrog because it's got two horns at the top Hmm. and the horns gather the the horn is shaped like your fingers your index finger and your thumb and the wire comes in and reaches the, the, the center point, And that's where the sharp blade is and snaps the wire. No kidding. <laughs> and that goes, most helicopters have that. If you look at any sort of rescue helicopter or police helicopter, you'll see those wire cutters and it's designed for um, preventing wire, wire strikes. No kidding. It, 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 so yeah, usually they're up on above the cockpit just before the rotor and then usually down below on the nose on so around the skid area so interesting usually in either pairs or singles so yes helicopters have wire colors and if you'd like to see wire cutters if you'd like to see wire cutters on helicopters i suggest taking a visit to the american helicopter museum <laughs> and i'll be happy to show you around and we can look at all of the wire cutters that are on various our various helicopters yeah i'm going to look for that all right. So let's talk about GAASI um, and the future collaborative combat aircraft, the Gambit series. I thought this was a neat technology, Max. That's right. It, it, their approach to it. The the issue is, this is what we touched on at, uh, at the top of the show, I think, is that uh, many people are predicting that in the future, we're going to see a mix of manned and unmanned aircraft. And you know why are we seeing this change? Well, it's the uh, uh, this piece points out the uh, there are improvements in adversary aircraft and improvements in air defense systems, and that this collaborative combat aircraft or CCA is uh, is one response to that. And in this case, that uh, this is General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, they're proposing what they call the, the Gambit CAA, which the interesting. Uh, Part about this is that it, it's a family of aircraft. It's not a single aircraft. It's a family of aircraft with different variants for different missions. But there's a center core that is used in all of them. So you have one center package and then you build out from there. So so you're using compatibility and interchangeability um, depending upon your mission. But your core portion of the aircraft is used in, in this case, all four variants. And General Atomic says that this core accounts for about 70% of the price among all these different models. 
So uh, yeah, it's, you know, that's the bulk of it. And then configure it with engines, fuselages, wings, and other internal and external characteristics uh, that are appropriate for the particular particular mission. Uh, I, I kind of like this approach. I really do too. I mean, it it makes sense. Commonality is can be the downfall of aircraft, but it also could be the success of it. So it, it if General Atomics can make this standard core this interchangeable, it will be a really successful program. And um, so the, the different type of gambits, the first gambit is a nimble sensing platform optimized for long endurance. Gambit 2 adds the provision for air-to-air weapons. Gambit 3 looks much like Gambit 2, only optimized for a complex adversary air role. And Gambit 4 is a combat reconnaissance-focused model with no tail and swept wings. So pretty much your Predator, Reaper, and um, Tier 1 strategic uh, drone. So, but all using the same core. So it, it'll be interesting to see if that goes forward. Yes. It's yes. David, you found a really fascinating video of the week. I did. Um, and the video of the week is how a hive 3D printing drones could change construction. And this was from Mashable. Um, a team of researchers at Imperial College London and uh, EMPA have been developing collaborative aerial drones. And we've talked about 3D printing a lot. It seems like the technology is maturing like UAS's, but I never saw it. I would see the two of them working together, but this is really kind of cool. It's kind of drawing inspiration from the way bees work. And here the scientists are training these robots to construct 3D printed buildings from a single blueprint. So it's not, a case where there are uh, different blueprints for different sections or uh, or components. There's a blueprint for the overall uh, object building to be uh, 3D printed, and the the group of drones uh, make it happen. They fly autonomously. This has been tested uh, using lightweight cement mixtures. So uh, clearly at this point in time, the drones are somewhat limited as to the weight of the material they can use to 3d print, but that can, that can change in the, in the future. And, uh, this could have all kinds of fascinating applications, uh, where you, know, you have a, a swarm of these things, uh, building uh, shelters, um, in in tough conditions like uh, Arctic conditions, um, maybe maybe even in space, ultimately on the, on on the moon or on Mars or someplace else. Uh, but this is uh, a, a fascinating video to watch. It's clearly in its sort of early stages of of development, and some of the structures that you can see in the video being created are yeah pretty crude, but. Uh, I mean, this is just the start of, of something that could be uh, quite quite significant. Absolutely. And so definitely watch the video. Um, it's kind of science fiction-y, you know. It, it, these drones are building buildings, sort of. And it's kind of miraculous that these drones are building these taller structures, taller than men or individuals, you know. So it definitely has a lot of... Pro- um, a definite 
aspect of something we, when we started this show years ago, would have never thought would be 3D printing with a drone. Oh, I yeah. Mean, yeah. And uh, I mean, it. it is, again, another one of those, the drone is becoming a Swiss army knife and is capable of doing so many things that we never thought we'd dream of. So still a gilded age for being for UAS. For sure. Well, we want to thank you for listening to the UAV Digest. This has been episode 413. You can find us at the UAVdigest.com. If you want to uh, access or see the the articles that we talked about, um, the uh, advisory circular from the FAA, all that you'll find in the show notes at that site. If you want to go there directly, that's the UAVdigest.com slash 413. And of course, you can always find us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, Max and I are both on LinkedIn. Um, so Max Flight or David Vanderhoof. Um, so reach us there. And, of course, you can join our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com, and we'll be happy to send you a link so you can join the conversation there. So, uh, Max, um, are we going to be another eight weeks before our next episode? Um, No, but I don't know how long, because uh, I've just uh, spent or or driven 5,000 miles in a kind of a roundabout way to get from Connecticut to Nevada. I have to get back from. Uh, I have to get from Nevada to uh, back to Connecticut. I'm not going <laughs> to. It's not going to take five thousand more miles, but uh, I still have several thousand to put on. So we'll see if uh, I can be in a place next week where uh, David and I can record. We'll do a show. Otherwise, uh, you may have to be patient with us again, just a little bit. So with that, I'm going to say we'll talk to you soon. This is David in Delaware. And Max currently in Nevada. Thanks for listening.